podcast ain't played nobody, your college football marriage of numbers and words. We are going to start with a mea culpa. Um, I can't believe this hasn't happened before, but I got an email after last week's show uh, that led me to discovering that I completely botched my conference realignment, my quick, uh, what was it, champion, mid-major Champions League idea. Uh, I had jotted it down on a plane. I was scrolling up and down as I was reading team names and different, uh, putting them in different little uh, batches. And I, ca- I was reminded via email afterwards that I had forgotten all about the Mac. I had scrolled right past it, which is why I was confused when I was talking about North Dakota State being in the like with the Texas schools because I had scrolled right past the Mac. And that's um, it really, you know, because this is such an off the cuff podcast, it's surprising that something like, like that hadn't happened before. But regardless, it violates the ethos of podcasting played nobody to screw something up Mac related. And I apologize for that. If we have the time, I might read his proposal uh, that he sent me when he thought I had uh, like just completely forgotten the Mac. And it's pretty good. So I might just adopt his. But regardless, I am Bill Connolly. Uh, Godfrey? I am not. Wait, Stephen Godfrey. Who the, wait, who am I talking to right now? This is Richard Johnson. I'm coming, you, uh, coming to you live from huh. college football's greatest city, New York City, in our beautiful, bright new huh. office, uh, 85 Broad Street, in our uh, gleaming new podcast studios with, like, soundproof walls and carpet and everything. It's, like, eerily, like, deadly quiet. It's really weird. Yeah, Godfrey, if you're listening to this, he's trying to steal the gig here. He's trying to bring in good audio, too. I don't know how I feel about this, but um, we're going to go with it. Uh, Stephen Godfrey, by the way, now the officially the father of two children. Uh, they had their baby this morning. Finally. We congratulate them. That's right. It sounded like it took a little while. Yeah. But that happens <laughs> sometimes. Uh, and we are very, very happy for the Godfrey family. So, Richard... I guess I guess I'm talking. I guess I'm talking to you today. Um, <laughs> I'd say we have something pretty interesting to talk about, and that would be the fact that ESPN is laying off a whole lot of talent at the moment, and somebody on this podcast has worked with ESPN within the last year. It's not me. Yeah. Um, so the ESPN. Uh, I've been in. A, I've been on a train all morning um, up here, so I am kind of just like I opened my phone up in the subway station coming out, and like. Just text messages, text messages, text messages, text messages about kind of who's kind of getting the axe and who's getting fired. Um, there are really, really, really good people in this industry um, that are losing their jobs. Um, I obviously I work for SB Nation now as a college football writer, but I worked for ESPN for uh, a little bit more than a year um, up until September. Um, and so I was at ESPN during the last layoff period when they um, – when they got rid of about 300 people um, that were more behind the scenes. Um, and like ESPN was my first job in the media industry, my first you know full-time job in the media industry. And I remember just being shook about the layoffs at that point because it was, you know, I was a, I was a little fish, like I was this minnow. Um, and you know, if it was gonna come down, like I expected them to cut me. Um, thankfully they didn't at that, at that time. And my career has obviously proceeded. Um, but this um, today is a lot different because today is a lot of front facing people um, yeah. and it's it's on air talent, too, and uh, people that you you guys know because you've read them um, online. Uh, Brett McMurphy just tweeted out that he's uh, that he's been let go from ESPN after five years. Um, Brett McMurphy is the pre- he's the Adam Schefter of college football. He's the preeminent <laughs> newsbreaker of college football. Um, and and you know I, I don't want to get too personal inside baseball here, um, but Brett is a really really good guy. Like he like 
He's he Brett McMurphy is a guy that you would love to have a beer with. Um, I was at SEC Media Days <laughs> in college one time, and I was with him and some other older reporters. I covered Florida in college, and and Brett used to work in Tampa. Um, before going to CBS and going to ESPN. Um, and I just remember Brett like telling me about the industry and I was like 20 years old and he like bought me a few beers and he tricked the bartender that night into like picking up the entire tab. Like it was wild. And that was, that's like the formative, like personal experience that I have with Brett. So it sucks to see somebody like that in our industry get fired. And it sucks to see so many other people in our industry get fired. But I think Bill, and the thing that we kind of wanted to talk about is like from a news breaking perspective like what this means for ESPN and what this means for the future of ESPN like the NFL largesse will always be there but you know there's now like what happens to I guess for our standpoint uh, specifically college football yeah what seems to overall what seems to be the approach with these uh, with these cuts number one hockey (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah we already knew that I mean ESPN had kind of scaled back the the hockey coverage it brought to the table uh, from a you know live events standpoint and whatnot, um, so it made it, it it was not a surprise to see a bunch of hockey people seemingly let go. But it seems like overall, uh, a lot of these people are you know a people who have name recognition uh, enough to command a higher salary, but not enough to. Uh, I guess bring hits to the website or or eyeballs well, to the television or whatever. Yeah, uh, essentially, like essentially, Disney told ESPN to cut costs, and they then said right. it again. Um, and yeah. so this is cutting costs. And and you know, and beyond that, it does seem like they're getting out of the news breaking. Um, you know, they're they're getting rid of a lot of people, McMurphy, Edwarder, et cetera, with a lot of sources. And you know, honestly, if if we accept that they were there had to be costs to cut here, I mean, I guess there's logic behind that. Just to, you know, because when you got that ticker at the bottom, uh, you know, as long as you're saying you know news first reported by CBS Sports or or whatever. You know, the ticker ticks, and it doesn't really matter who that comes from. And maybe they decided there was no value in saying ESPN's Brett McMurphy has learned that. And they can just run it at the bottom anyway. They just have to source it a little differently. So, um, uh, you know. It's the thing, like, so the thing with breaking news is, like, does the, and it's, I imagine it's what ESPN, um, it, it, in the boardroom when they kind of decided who was going to go and, and who was going to uh, stay, does the audience care specifically about the person who breaks right. the news? Like, if, if it's pushed to my phone by five different apps, like, I'm going to get it. Like, I might not right. get it for 20 minutes, but I'm going to get it. Um, and so that's kind of like... That's the difference now. Like, it, 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 that's what's changed, and that's why, like, a guy like McMurphy, who is as plugged in as, like, Brett McMurphy has 130 college football coaches, uh, head coaches, phone numbers in his cell phone. Like, he does. <laughs> and, like, um, and he, he got let go today. And so that's the, the changing paradigm of the industry. And, you know, ESPN... ESPN has the games and look, the sky is not falling at ESPN. All right. Like somebody texted me earlier and was like, Oh, does this mean ESPN's on the, on the decline? And I said, well, yeah, relative to literally everyone being on the decline. Yes. Right. But ES, I, I have and I don't know, maybe it's cause I'm biased toward ESPN or whatever. Like ESPN's going to be fine. Um, it, it may be a, a less fine, maybe a different benchmark than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago. 
but ESPN will still be fine, and they'll be the finest out of anyone, I believe, personally. Yeah, I think um, that whole the 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 quote unquote future proof studio thing that they spend you know bazillions of dollars on a few years ago. Um, a lot of the moves that they they have been making, I, I think, are, are logical just when it comes to you know trying to t- kind of take over the industry, so to speak. Moves like that I, it made me kind of uneasy from the start. But as a whole, they just yeah, the industry is changing. They they milked as much as they possibly could from the way the industry was set up three, four, five, six, ten, fifteen years ago. They became the WWL, the worldwide leader, uh, and they still are because who's going to take that mantle? It's just yeah, the the way things are being consumed um, is different now, and so they uh, they're they're making changes in that regard. And I mean, I hate the changes. Like I, I saw Eamon Brennan. Um, uh, what I, what's uh, uh, one of their good soccer guys that I really like has gone too. Um, they're they're sorry, Amy Brennan is a basketball guy, and I'm talking about a different one. But um, you know, there, there's just a lot of they're cutting from the web, they're cutting breaking news, they're cutting TV people that we've seen uh, on screen a lot, and and it just kind of sucks. And and we'll see. In theory, if you know another organization wanted to try to pounce on this. Uh, you know, maybe they'd pull it off, but this does, I think, speak to the fact that fewer people are are are, are consuming, are are paying for cable, and uh, they're consuming things in a different way. And and right now, ESPN is following following the money, so to speak, and j- just in that, you know, they're they're going, they're sticking with the <laughs> some of the craptastic things that I don't watch, uh, as opposed <laughs> to. Um, I'll, well, I'll just leave it at that. But um, I mean, I think the the decisions they're having to make right now are logical. It just sucks, and there's no way around the fact that it sucks. Yeah, and like that is a. I think the one like being being 24 years old. I think the one like, the one truism about this industry is you're gonna get fired at some point, and that is a very like. Yeah, like people went to ES. I at age twenty three when I got my job at ESPN, um, or age twenty two. Like I thought that I was going to stay at ESPN for a long, long time, and I didn't get fired at ESPN. I left, but the 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 safety and security of ESPN was such that you went to ESPN and you stayed at ESPN and you matriculated through whatever you wanted to do. But if you were at, but ESPN was so big and so widespread that you can go and do, you know, whatever you really wanted to do in whatever area. But the news of now two rounds of pretty vicious wide-ranging cuts at ESPN changed that base level of security um, about the industry even more so than it already has. Anybody, anything, anywhere, any place, any vein of this industry is up for grabs. Um, and that's kind of the way the journalism game goes. And, you know, I, like I'm kind of getting inside baseball because we get inside baseball in this podcast. Um, but that's kind of like th- that's the that's the thousand pound anvil that feels <laughs> like it dropped today uh, again because it dropped about a year and change ago as well. Yeah. And I mean, just generally speaking, you know, when you join a Disney, this is you become more susceptible to this, too, because. 
I mean, yeah, their 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 revenue is falling to be sure, but now it's you know they're uh, they're responsible for Disney's revenue falling, um, and you can't just say you know well we'll make some tweaks in house. Now it's Disney saying you have to fix this immediately for, you know, because you know, stock, stock price, et cetera. But, um, that, you know, that's, that's what's another example, Twitter, Twitter for a long time, hasn't grown as quickly as other things. Well, so what, that's still pretty good, but now they have a stock price. Now they have something, now they have something where you, if you're not growing, you're, you're falling. And when, when, when that changes, uh, you know, your approach changes <laughs> among other things. It stops being quite as fun. Um, and you know, that that's, um, I, I mean, maybe that's, that's a, I, 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 maybe this is a good time to mention that I, I really like the way Vox media as a whole goes about things, but I mean, today isn't about Vox. So I'll just stop that. <laughs> I like it. it it's going to be very interesting to see how this sport continues to get covered. Um, yeah. Because it's like obviously the SEC will always be covered, the ACC will always be covered. Um, but what happens to the smaller schools? What happens to um, the G five leagues? What happens to the G five conferences? I, it's it's it, as coverage declines, you're going to have to get them as publicly facing as possible. Looking at you, Mountain West. If no one's gonna, if no one's gonna come, you know, cover your games and write about what? Well, not no one. If less, uh, less prominent media people at less prominent outlets, I should say, are gonna come, um, are gonna come less often to your school to cover the Donald Pumphreys of the world. Um, how are those stories gonna get told? How are people gonna know those guys? Um, and how are you gonna see them on a Saturday? Well, that means you better saddle up um, with the ESPNs of the world to have your games on live air and not have your games at 1130 on the network nobody has. Um, and that's part of that problem. That's part of, the, that's part of the problem now that I think G5 leagues are going to face kind of more than ever because there's this, like, giant push-pull between, like, coaches and everybody that wants to – everybody in the college football world that wants to keep things, you know, more insular and, and all that kind of stuff. But a need to open up – because less people are coming in to, you know, to, to cover your team. It, it's going to be interesting the way that ball rolls and, and moving forward. I think the other thing here is that, um, you know, I'm not going to say this led to cord cutting and, and whatnot, but um, we, we know that schools are taking on more themselves in terms of social media and, and product, so to speak. Uh, we know that certain conferences are doing that too. And I mean, maybe this is just a logical, maybe the Mountain West sees this and, and decides to, to you know, circle the wagons and try to use Twitter and whatnot to, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a weird situation to be in. Um, but the bottom line here too, is that live sports, maybe the ratings are, are down a little bit here and there, but live sports still drive everything. And, and that's not going to, in that sense, what, what the, you know, that part doesn't change here. We're still going to get live sports and we're still going to react to them. It's the reacting to them part that, that might change moving forward. Yeah. And it's where, you know, where you go to react to them. Do, you know, are you going, you're not necessarily going to TV to hear other people reacting. You're going to Twitter or Facebook or whatever. Right. Um, you know, or you're just doing like, you just go outside, <laughs> you know, like, or something well, else. Like not, after the game. Let's not go that far. <laughs> but, 
but anyway, uh, that is the news of the day, and it stinks. I mean, you know, either either friends of ours got laid off or friends of friends did, and and either way, it's not uh, not a lot of fun. Um, this is a weird. Actually, I was gonna I'm gonna put it off. I was gonna say we have a a, a relatively optimistic topic to talk about, but we're gonna say that for the end. Because so we're gonna stay be, doom and gloom. Good. Right, we're gonna yeah that that would be an awkward segue. Um, well, I, and I, I, maybe these aren't optimistic or pessimistic either, but we're going to go into reader questions. Um, last week, uh, as always, as this is the Godfrey spiel, and I'll, I'll probably blow it, but um, you know, we are encouraging people to go to the SB Nation comment section. Uh, the, every PAPN episode has its own post at SB Nation, uh, and, and there you can interact with other PAPN listeners. You can leave questions for us to read. Um, we never actually get to them uh, uh, in the comments section, because they always, uh, my attention span sucks, but regardless, we will, uh, we address them the next week on PAPN. We've got some pretty interesting questions here that I thought I'd, I'd kind of roll through. Um, the first one is from Robert Baker, by the way, Robert Baker is the person who emailed me to tell me how he'd screwed up the Mac. So thank you. <laughs> thanks. Thanks and screw you to Robert Baker. And I will try to get to his, um, his, uh, layout for the champions league, so to speak here in a minute. Uh, his comment, the year zero thing is something I've been very familiar with as a Purdue fan, but I wonder if you can quantify a year zero in a year other than the first year of a new coach's tenure. Um, well, yes, actually, uh, uh, but I'll get to that. Uh, the situation I think uh, it, that I think illustrates this would be a Baylor type situation where there is still talent present in the first year, but recruiting takes a hit or, and a year or two later is when the attrition hits there. The other would be if a coach brings in a lot of transfer slash Juco talent in a quote unquote, win now move. And it comes back to bite him with depth uh, in a random down year or a coach banks on player development uh, for one year reason or another. Uh, the development leaves a Valley like the 2016 Michigan state team is his, his example there. Is it possible for a coach to survive a year zero type situation in a non-first year or if their track record shows that it's the exception and not the norm? Uh, one example I have for this is actually basketball. Um, you know, obviously a Mizzou guy, um, Frank Haith, a few years ago came on. Uh, to our, old buddy Frank. our old buddy, Frank. Our old buddy, Frank. Um it was really interesting. I, I do not hold him in quite the same negative regard as a lot of Missouri fans do because I kind of understand how he ended up where he ended up. But it was interesting because <clears throat> so first year he comes in, um, inherits the 2011-12 Missouri basketball team, which was almost nothing but seniors. Mike Anderson had not signed anybody before he left uh, for Arkansas. <clears throat> There's a you know, blue chipper named Otto Porter who was a Missoulian for a very long time. He did not close the deal on Otto Potter. Porter. Porter ended up going to Georgetown. Really? That's interesting. Yeah, but basically um, he inherited a, a roster that was all seniors except for uh, point guard Phil Pressey and shooting guard Mike Dixon. But he based, so he basically from that point forward he was he was chasing. So that first team did really well, uh, you know, until the, the NCAA tournament. And the Mizzou joke is that, you know, for some reason the NCAA tournament was canceled that year. Don't remember why <laughs> or, or who they might, might've played, but um, regardless, that was a very good team, but then they had to start chasing. So, like Phil Pressey was, you know, maybe thinking about going pro early or, you know, their transfer thoughts, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they needed to keep a solid product on the field despite having to almost completely redraw the entire roster. So he took on a bunch of transfers. Uh, he, he did bring in some freshmen. And what ended up dooming him was that those freshmen didn't do very well. But he took on a ton of transfers the, in his second year with Pressey. Pressey left after that year, and he took on a ton more transfers. He had uh, the, the Dixon kid ended up 
up being a major creep and getting kicked out of school. Uh, but regardless, that is something that can happen. That you know that situation was set up for him to face a year zero in year two, and he decided to kind of double down and keep the the experienced talent flowing in. Obviously, there were, a there were chemistry issues, and b as soon as there was any injury or unexpected transfer, like a Dixon uh, Lawrence Bowers got hurt that second year as well, um, the team really really struggled. And so because he wasn't developing freshmen as he should or as he could or whatever, and they were leaving too, uh, he ended up continuing to have to to um, refresh the talent pool with transfers and other shortcuts. And he was facing a year four where they were almost definitely going to fall off. He had not engendered enough goodwill to, to get the contract extension he felt he needed to get uh, to continue um, recruiting moving forward. And so he kind of started looking around, found Tulsa, left for Tulsa uh, before he could probably get fired 12 months later. So it is a risk. And I mean, that goes for JUCOs in general. I mean, that's um, when, the more JUCOs you sign, the less of a five-year pipeline you have set up and the more you'll probably have to go back to the well uh, JUCO-wise, uh, you know, in year two or three or four or five or whatever. Uh, it becomes something where you are constantly chasing and, and uh, it can absolutely happen. I, um, so I, I think my question is, and tell me if I'm kind of, tell me if this take is too hot. Um, since, so since essentially a year zero after year zero is ostensibly like regression that may not necessarily be regression. Like it may be like inevitability more than regression, um, actual regression, Michigan, Michigan's losing like, isn't 42 seniors off of, or 32. It's a a ton of seniors off of last year's team. Um, they're going to regress. Maybe regression for them is seven and five. Um, eight and four. Could you kind of count this as a year zero for Jim Harbaugh? Yeah, maybe year zero ends up being just kind of your your mulligan or your so your point five. I don't know. Yeah, I mean it does. I, and I think part of it also, of course, depends on whether it it seems like this quote unquote year zero is is your fault or someone else's. And and with Harbaugh, obviously, I mean he took in you know, transfers or whatever, but for the most part, this year was coming. It was always going to come. And, um, you know, he didn't, he didn't load up on Juco's when he walked in the door or anything. So it was going to happen. Um, but I mean, yeah, maybe, maybe it's more just like a mulligan year where, uh, you just have to rearrange everything and, and hopefully it doesn't count against you. And then you can move forward after that. Harbaugh. I mean, it's been kind of funny. Like, uh, you know, he's, you look at the record, it doesn't seem like he's doing, done all that well, but I mean, his team was for two straight years, his team was just tremendous. The first half or two thirds of the season and then fell off late. Um, he's recruited well enough that obviously he's, he's got nothing but goodwill going on, but it is the other thing too, is, is just living through it makes an impact. Like we can, we can tell like Michigan fans right now can look at this and say, yeah, there's probably a drop off coming, but when you actually then <laughs> physically go seven and five, they hate it and they start getting mad and impatient. And, and that's kind of just the, the process of being a fan, I guess. But um, yeah, I mean, that's a pretty good situation. It wasn't really his doing that this year was coming. Uh, and, and to a certain degree, his own recruiting will probably make it not as bad as it could be. Uh, among other things, because they trailed off the last couple of years, they're not they're not having to replace. Uh, they're not facing dropping from like fourteen and one to seven and six. Um, so, but yeah, I mean that is a decent example. Baylor's obviously a decent example too, I guess. Uh, but no, I mean it it definitely happens. Um, 
Darth Darth, our commenter Darth Darth, uh, says, I live in Tulsa. Love having the AA schools swing through in the fall. I attended the Tulsa spring game, and it seemed like they were a long way to go in getting a QB to replace Dane Evans. Uh, Bill has stated before that the biggest indicators on continued offensive success year to year is from passing and slash receiving yards, returning on offense, uh, and defending the pass uh, on defense. Uh, and it seems like Tulsa won't have enough at the beginning of the season to really catch fire from September on. That said, I've penciled in three of their games right now because tickets are cheap. Hey. Uh, the email slash tweet y'all had about price versus game day experience is right on for me. On the average weekend, I would much rather drive 15 minutes to a dirt cheap AAC game than 90 plus minutes to a higher talent Big 12 or SEC stadium at five times the ticket cost. Um to address the first part there, I mean, the second part wasn't really a question, I guess, but um, to address the first part, yeah, I, I just set up Tulsa's preview for tomorrow. They, um, they they have everything back except the passing game, which gets almost a complete reset. And so this will be an interesting test. Like, you can look at that and say the defense will be better, and, hey, they've got Phil Montgomery, therefore their offense is going to be fine. You might be right, and if you are, then they're an AAC favorite almost because if the offense doesn't drop off the defense should get better and they were damn good last year so um this will be a test of plug and play basically if they can figure out the quarterback situation they did have a kid what's his name chad president who was almost a four-star kid if i remember right um if he kind of catches on so to speak and or if they can find somebody else then they're probably okay but it is a a test in that regard yeah with burning tulsa opinions here well the one thing that i'll say with the air raid guys like I uh, honestly, like, just assume year to year that they're just going to keep it rolling with all the air raid guys, honestly. And that's like, you know, you never want to do that. But, like, the air raid guys tell you that there's something about, like, I sat in Dino Baber's office uh, about a month ago and asked him, like, what it is about the offense uh, and does he see the, like, relative plug-and-play quality of it. Uh, year to year and the year two bumps especially and he admitted to it like the air raid guys know the system kind of stays fine um, if not gets better year over year over year Um, and so that's why I kind of will always side with just assuming the best in the air raid guys um, and their systems and just saying "Eh, yeah it's also probably fine yeah, I mean, well, Baylor proved that for a number of years. Um, they lost all sorts of breakthrough guys. They lost Robert Griffin and just kept kept going, kept cranking out yards and points. That year he got hurt uh, with 09, I think, and, like, what is his name? Nick Florence takes over, and they average 500 yards a game and X number of points, and they win some games and whatnot. Obviously, there are levels, but, yeah, you, you would assume, especially on offense, the drop-off isn't going to be that significant. But this will be, this will be a test. Uh, he obviously hasn't had that long to recruit for his system, um, and you know, maybe, maybe that, that leads to a bigger drop off, but they will be able to lean on the run. And I think he's proven, um, a lot of people in, within that strain of offense have proven they, they don't mind leaning on the run if they have to, um, nobody Babers is almost as orthodox as they come when it comes to the past, but nobody's as orthodox as like a Michael each at this point, uh, when it comes to, we're just going to throw no matter what they can lean on the run and they might be able to pull it off. Actually. Um, because this is completely off the cuff, I'm going to change gears to our optimistic topic because uh, for Tulsa's preview tomorrow, one of the things I I found myself talking about because I go in weird directions is the idea of certain schools just kind of feeling right when it comes to this team should be good. It it feels right when this team is good. And um, it's a formative college football experience thing. So look at this Tulsa-based segue. 
Um, <laughs> uh, in, in, in the preview, I, I write a little bit about how like around, you know, age seven to 13 was when I was really getting to know college football. And when I was 11 and 13, Tulsa had a pretty good team. Thir- when I was 13 and in, in 91, Tulsa had an awesome team to beat A&M. Uh, they hung with at Miami for a little while. They beat, um, uh, I think another power call, Oklahoma state. And then they, they, um, beat Marshall Falk and San Diego state in the bowl game. Really, really good team. One of the best Tulsa teams ever. And it was right at the point where it just seemed right. Like, you know, a bunch of Oklahoma and Texas kids playing good football. Um, and it just, so it always made sense when Tulsa was that salty mid-major type of team. And, and the fact that I grew up in Oklahoma and, you know, knew some of the hometowns and whatnot, I'm sure had a role to play in that too. But for you, since we were, we were, we were going to talk about formative experiences because we haven't with you uh, on this show before, um, we'll start with mid-majors. Who are the mid-majors where you just kind of assume, yeah, they're going to, they're going to be good. Like without knowing how they've been doing recently, without knowing anything about like their coach or anything, you just look at their helmet and think, yeah, that's a pretty good football team. Well, you're talking about now? Well, yeah. I mean, just based on your own quote unquote formative experiences. Well, well, Boise, like Boise is the easy one. Um, You know, I was, I'm going to make, we're going to start talking about formative experiences. I'm going to make you feel old for just the next like. Oh yeah, minutes. yeah, yeah. No, don't worry about it. You already have. Yeah, like, <laughs> like when I was uh, it was 2006. I was 13, um, and so when I was 13, that was um, that was the Boise, you know, the the come up. That was the Fiesta Bowl and all that kind of stuff. The funny team that like now I know is like never going to be good. Um, God, I shouldn't say that. Um, now the formative team that I know has fallen on hard times is actually Purdue. Because when I was a kid, like that was like Drew Brees, like those kind of like Purdue. Like I remember, like, like I remember not knowing much about Purdue, but I knew enough about Purdue to say like, oh, like they're okay. Um, Maryland is the same way. Um, Maryland, like Ralph Friesian, Maryland is right around the time I was growing up. Um, and all, uh, God, there's a third team that I was thinking of that, uh, that I, oh, up Syracuse. Um, yeah. like those are three teams that were like good and Virginia tech who obviously is still pretty good, but like, I'm talking like Michael Vick, Virginia, like the national championship game was like the first time that I ever heard about Virginia tech. And so those are teams and I don't want to call Virginia tech a mid major, but you know what I mean? Um, those are schools and teams that like, I grew up as like, Oh, Florida's never, I grew up in Gainesville, uh, and went to Florida. Florida's never going to play these teams, um, but, like, these teams are teams that I hear about, and they're on TV, and they're good enough. Um, right. Or so I thought, and then I yeah. got a little bit older. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, obviously I am older, but, um, you know, I, I, it was at a point where you don't get a lot of uh, mid-majors on, on ESPN just yet. They're late 80s, early 90s. And so anytime you saw a team, it, it felt like a treat. And I, 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 one of the other things I mentioned, because I go off on tangents in these pieces, it's hard to, it's hard to write 2,500 or so words about every single team. Um, uh, Tulane. I remember very clearly watching Tulane Washington in the 1987 Independence Bowl wow. and thinking, what the hell is Tulane? Or no, it was, I, was, I was nine. What the heck is Tulane? Uh, and and so you just remember i remember seeing maine play once and being kind of weirded out by their color scheme which is really a cool like black and sky blue very unique um by the way i just pulled up the 1991 uh final polls Uh, tulsa ended up 21st i thought they were a little higher than that but 
They were 21st, but here, okay, so the top the top of these polls make perfect sense. Miami's one, Washington's two, Penn State's three, Florida State's four, Alabama five. Uh, that was the year before they surged to the national title. Michigan six, Florida seven. That all makes sense. That was Florida's first real breakthrough year with uh, Spurrier, the, the year before they were on uh, probation. Uh, after that, this is, this is crazy. Number eight, Cal. Number nine, East Carolina. Wow. Number 10, Iowa. Number 11, Syracuse. Number 12, A&M. 13, Notre Dame. 14, Tennessee. Then we get, we get normal again. 15, Nebraska. 16, Oklahoma. 17, Georgia. 18, Clemson. 19, UCLA. 20, Colorado. And that was low for them. That was the year after they fluked their way into the national title. I'm not <laughs> bitter. Uh, not at then, all. No, Tulsa, Stanford, BYU, NC State, and Air Force making yet another uh, poll appearance, as was their custom in those days. But, yeah, uh, Bill Lewis and the 1991 East Carolina Pirates uh, finished 11-1 that year, uh, finished in the top 10. Uh, They beat Syracuse. They beat number 23 Pitt. They beat number 21 NC State in the bowl game. So, really, I'm referencing Tulsa with this idea, but that's the team I should – think of as the the formative 91 they should always be good because look how good they are kind of team um but anywho so formative experiences the reason i wanted to bring this up is uh we were well a i get to promote my book because of it (laughs) but b we were talking about this uh, a, a while back online um, 1991 Florida is in my book, the 50 best asterisk college football teams of all time. Um, and it was, I mean, for, for obvious reasons, if, if we're talking about interesting teams, innovative teams, then the first awesome, uh, Spurrier team, the SEC champion, uh, made, beat Florida, lost, a, a, or, uh, ended a brief losing streak with Florida. Um, it, it is in the book. And you mentioned that you got a book about that team that, uh, stuck with you. Yeah, I, um, like I said, you know, born in Gainesville, went to Florida. Um, but when I was a kid, so my parents um, are immigrants. My parents are from South America, um, Guyana, South America. And they don't know anything about football. I, they literally do not. Um, and so the fact that I am where I am is a very strange testament to just, like, the culture of growing up in, you know, growing up in America um, and growing up in a college football-centric culture. Um, That's why I love it. That's why I wanted to make it my job forever. Be that as it may. Um, When I was a kid, somebody, I don't know who, gave me a book on the 1991 Florida team. Um, And it was called Another Level. It was written by the Gainesville Sun. And it was a hardcover book um, about the team because that was the first year that Florida had was able to claim an SEC championship. Um, they've since changed it, but in Florida Stadium, uh, they, it used to have all the SEC East championships and the SEC championships, and then it had first in the SEC. Um, and I, when I was a kid, I never like connected the dots or like understood what that meant, and I never really read the book. I just flipped through for the cool pictures of football. But as I got old enough to read the book and learn about Florida, that's when you learn about the scandals in the 80s that I think you guys actually <laughs> talked about a few years ago um, that wiped away those SEC championship games. Uh, like the New York Times actually gave Florida a national championship in, I believe, 1985, 
whatever the year was that they were like really good in the 80s. Yeah, they went 84, 85. They went 9, 1, and 1 both years and finished in the top uh, five. So it is kind of a funny situation because it was like, you know, this was Florida's coming out party. Well, they had been awesome very recently. They just couldn't stop getting caught making, uh, committing violations. Exactly. And like, we talk about year zeros. It's funny. Spurrier walked into a stacked deck in 1990. I mean, if you call it what it is. That team won, quote-unquote, air quotes, won the SEC in 1990 as well. And they only um, improved by two games, by the way. They were still seven and five. Now, there were, there were sanctions. There, I mean, there, there were other things they had to deal with. But, yeah, the, the talent was, was obvious. Yeah, and so that 91 team that actually did win the SEC championship game, and it's, there's two really kind of funny th- things about the 1991 team. Um, that have always stuck with me. The first one is that to this day, Steve Spurrier still considers that 1990 team his first SEC championship game, right. or year. Like to this day, um, th- like I, I'm pretty sure he got him rings. Uh, the other thing is Florida went to Syracuse in like week three or four of that season yep. and got, got yeah got the hell kicked out of them. Um, and the as the saying or the legend goes, that's the reason why Florida has not gone out of the state of Florida for a non-conference game until this year when they go to Dallas um, to play Michigan for the money in the Cowboys kickoff classic, whatever it is. But, yeah, it, the, the Florida does not go out of state for non-conference games. Um, and, it, yeah, they, you know, they say because of that. Yeah, I mean, they had just rocked Alabama, and they were patting themselves on the, I think I, I remember reading a quote when I was writing the book and writing about that team. Um, like they, he Spurrier knew before kickoff. Like, uh, we are not like this team has is not paying attention right now. This team is not dialed in at all. And I think Syracuse comes out and like runs a reverse on the on the opening kickoff or something like that. And it was just very clear immediately. Like they were they were they were there for business, and Florida State did not expect that much of a fight. Um, and so it ended up being a nice learning uh, lesson to learn for them. But, yeah, they, they come back from that, and, I mean, I guess Spurrier had their attention after that. They whooped Mississippi State. They whooped LSU. They whooped Tennessee. Um, there is a, another funny story about, I think, against Northern Illinois in the, mid, in the middle of that season. They, I mean, they, they handled their business just fine. They won 41-10, to 10, but he was so mad at the offensive line for not doing its job that he subbed in a brand-new uh, brand f- uh, five offensive lineman. Um, and, and then they come out and they, they destroy Auburn. They handle, they destroy number 23, Georgia. And then they finally finish up that the, the year by finally beating uh, Florida state again. Yeah. And, and it and proving their top five bona fides, so to speak. Yeah. And then they went to the sugar bowl and got beat by Notre Dame and we don't talk yeah. about it. Um, but we're, we're getting kicked out of this podcast studio, but I will say that um, it was a really treat for me to see that the 91 team uh, gets in the book, got in the book, um, and gets recognized, obviously, because we know so much about what Florida was able to do in the mid-90s, national championship, et cetera, Urban Meyer years, all that good stuff. Um, but that team was, you know, one of the first things that kind of started Florida's run that, you know, we'll, we will see if they get back to anything close uh, to that in the future. So this is, this is the trade-off. You get nice, lovely audio, but it's in a studio where they can actually kick you out for the next appointment. Yeah, she so. could, like, theoretically, she could just nix the audio and we'd really be done. Yeah, so uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and stop there. Um, but, yes, thank you, Richard. We will be back. Uh, I, I, I assume the plan is for Godfrey to be back next week again. Uh, we can catch up on a lot of, you know, birthing details or, <laughs> or just football, and then we'll go from there.
So since this is my podcast, uh, I am going to, and, and we have a backload of questions to read. I'm going to continue solo. Uh, I thank Richard for coming on. This was, um, uh, we're, we're going to, we got a couple more guest spots to, to fill and I've got some pretty fun ideas uh, after Godfrey comes back next week. So stay tuned on that. But regardless, uh, this just me for a little while. So if you want to turn it off, I understand, but otherwise I'm going to keep talking. Uh, some more questions to address in the, in last week's uh, comments thread. Uh, Cletus Snow, will a team in Iowa ever try to run the single wing again? Would it be smart to try single wing? Uh, or sorry, not Iowa. He said IA. That's one A, I assume. Would it be smart to try single wing devotees are fanatical that it can still work? Personally, the only way I see it happening is at a G5 school that's in the middle of a talent desert. Uh, I also think it would have to be a coach who knows he's on his last stop, like Schnellenberger at FAU was, for example. As a, fan, as a fan of bygone offenses, I wish I could see this offense in 1A football just once and not in an era full of skinny white guys playing with no face masks. Um, now, I, the 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 the, the kind of high level answer would be that you see the single like aspects of the single wing all the time. Um, you know, that's everything, everything is developed from something else. And so if we're talking about just hardcore, like whatever that would be like seven linemen and whatnot, and, and nobody really running pass routes half the time, then probably not. But you see a lot of the single wing in a lot of, of spread iterations. And so it's there. You can find it if you're looking for it. It's just not going to quite look the same with a bunch of linemen and uh, a bunch of 220 pound linemen. It has changed a little bit in that regard. Uh, Chester L, uh, official visits versus unofficial visits. Knowing that you wrote the great Bagman article, Godfrey, how much am I to believe that uh, schools don't actually pay for quote unquote unofficial visits? I can't imagine more than half of you, all recruits could afford to do all these unofficial visits. Uh, do you agree? In the same vein, what is the difference between Power Five and Group of Five with unofficial visits? Should I assume G5 schools break less rules? Uh, I know that a lot of factors go into being a P5 versus G5, but I'm curious uh, if there's ever any. Uh, if there is any other major difference between besides money, including facilities when it comes to recruiting, um, uh, you know, I'm not Godfrey. He would have a better answer here, but I mean, yeah, there's, especially with the bigger name recruits, it's, it's not going to necessarily be what can the school afford because technically the school probably isn't the one quote unquote paying for the, the visits. It'll come from elsewhere. You'll get, set up uh, to to run into certain uh, boosters and whatnot. I would say that happens at the G5 level too, if I'm willing to bet. It's just going to be at the G5 level, you're less likely to have as many boosters. You'll have fewer of them and therefore fewer opportunities, fewer uh, recruits to uh, you know be super nice to and whatnot. Um, that's probably the best way that I can put it. Maybe Godfrey can come back with a better answer later on on that one. Virginia Jim, question about Larry Coker's legacy. I love this podcast. Uh, this is a two-part question. Number one, what do you think is Larry Coker's final legacy as a coach? He won a national championship with Miami, but it was mainly Butch Davis's team, and he was replaced to the joy of Miami fans everywhere by Randy Shannon, uh, though his win percentage ended up being higher than that of Randy's. Um, there are also a number of violations that happened during his coaching stint, which came to light later. I completely forgot that he coached the UTSA. Uh, I may remember the hiring, but I recall nothing of his tenure. Two, has there been another coach who won a national championship who was thought of as poorly as a coach as Larry Coker? I assume there must be one, but I can't bring one to mind. Uh, the second question was already answered in comments. That would be Gene Chizik. 
um, who was never really thought of as the person who was who was captaining that ship for 2010 Auburn, but he did. He got a title. I know. I mean, Dennis Erickson won a national title at Miami. I know he wasn't considered as highly as uh, Jimmy Johnson and whatnot, but uh, Chiswick is probably the best example there. As far as the first question, I mean, so okay, I, I, I'm going to do this. So Larry Coker, here here is Larry Coker's entire career. Uh, the the thing about being a head coach in college football is most of the time it is kind of the climax to an enormous long 20 or 30 year career running up to when you get an opportunity to, to be a head coach. Uh, Larry Coker had been a head co- had been a coach in football, had entered football uh, leading Fairfax high school in Oklahoma. And then he moved on to Claremore high school in Oklahoma. He was a running backs coach. Uh, I believe that was under John uh, uh, Cooper at Tulsa. Then he was uh, offensive coordinator for Cooper from 80 to 82. He ended up on Jimmy Johnson's staff at Oklahoma state. He was Oklahoma. He was offensive coordinator at Oklahoma state. He was offensive coordinator for Gary Gibbs at Oklahoma. He was a defensive backs coach coach, which is interesting, uh, for Cooper on, at Ohio State. Then he landed back on the offensive side of the ball uh, for Butch Davis in Miami and then ended up leading that team in Miami. First of all, that's a hell of a career. I mean, his quote-unquote legacy, he's touched a lot of people in that time. You know, a lot of uh, people were recruited by Larry Coker and probably coached by Larry Coker. And, and you know, so kind of the insular legacy is he's fine. He, he led a lot of people who probably really like him, and they, they won some games as well as far as a national legacy yeah he's always going to be thought of um as the person who was kind of the babysitter for that Miami team that that did so great in 01 uh the babysitter for the Miami team that got that came up one game short in 02 but I mean you know I I guess that's not a wonderful national legacy to hold as you know well he won with somebody else's coach or with somebody else's players he did just fine um, he, he probably lives a pretty good life right about now. He did take over UTSA in 2011, built that program from scratch. Or he, he took over before 2011, took over in like 09, um, and then led them onto the field. He was the, the only UTSA coach in existence until he le- retired at the end of 2015. Had a couple of good years. Uh, they won eight and four one year, seven and five another. Uh, he really, he built that program quickly. He just did it with a lot of, of JUCOs as we were talking. Um, he had a ton of seniors all at once. Uh, and then, you know, couldn't ever really replicate that level of success uh, with his next batch of recruits. And they fell off. They won seven games combined in 14 and 15. Uh, but he, and he left a cupboard, a decently stocked cupboard for Frank Wilson to come in and go to a bowl game last year. But um, yeah, he, he was bowl eligible a couple of years. He's a good coach. Anybody who can can you know go can can lead, who can live in one profession for almost five decades knows what he's doing. And Larry Coker is a good coach. He just um, you know he couldn't keep it going in Miami, obviously. And then obviously he, whatever he was able to get going at UTSA, he wasn't able to keep it going. He was an offensive coordinator. A lot of big schools. He had a good career. Um, Recruiting rankings, user 11235 on, on SBN says, recruiting rankings, I think QB and OL are the hardest positions to recruit for, or to predict for recruiting. Have you looked at rankings for position groups and how they impact a team a few years down the road? Um, I did once um, last year, uh, I think uh, early 2016, I wrote a piece about, uh, a little bit about basically, not specifically recruits, but generally recruiting where, you know, just looking at like, what's the best way to put it? 
how well i'll pull up the piece it says how why do why does elite recruiting help college football defenses more than offenses was the title basically it looks at overall recruiting rankings and then just tossed it into a blender with a bunch of of statistical categories to see where the the best correlations were um the interesting part about it is that uh there's a strong correlation between uh recruiting and defensive S&P plus ranking much stronger for defense than offense which i found kind of interesting um, past defense, especially. And, and so, I mean, I dialed into a bunch of different categories and kind of drew the conclusion that, um, that defensive backs, maybe, maybe five-star defensive backs are the most valuable product when it comes to any of this quarterback too, is going to be very big there because I mean, we can, you can say that that quarterback is hard to project, but a five-star quarterback is going to be pretty good most of the time, I think. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think basically you could say that the defensive, maybe it's that offenses are always a step ahead. It's the offenses that innovate and the defenses that have to keep up. So maybe you could make a case that raw talent matters more on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, but generally speaking, yeah, I would say that um, those are the areas that are the, maybe the easiest to predict uh, on defense. Offensive line, as we've talked about many times, yeah, yeah, it's so hard to project offensive linemen because so many of the good ones get to the end of their high school time and they're 250 pounds uh, until they fill out completely, which takes a while. Uh, it takes a college strength program sometimes. Uh, you don't really know what you've got. And so I do think there are a lot more. You can find success without five-star recruits on the offensive line more than you can at other positions. Uh, those are all the, I think the, the, the SB nation thread questions that we got. I was going to mention, uh, I will take the time now to pull up Robert Baker's email, uh, because he honestly, I think this was better than mine. I, I, my, my thought wasn't fully formed when I started, uh, blabbering last week about it, but his, this is his, uh, just to, to get the record right. Here's his group of five champions league. It is a group of five. And I read four conferences like a dumbass last week. Uh, but he set them up in terms of East, Southeast, Midwest, South, and West. Bit close to what I had, um, except with, with just directional titles instead of the, the conference names. But basically the same idea. Uh, in the East, you have, he has our Appalachian State, Charlotte, East Carolina, Marshall, Navy, Old Dominion, Temple, UMass, Yukon, Buffalo, and Army, which makes sense. Um, you know, I had Appalachian State in the, in the Southern one, but that's still... Uh, a decent batch. And then you add Liberty, New Hampshire, Richmond, Villanova, and James Madison to that. That's pretty good. In the Southeast, he has Coastal Carolina, uh, Florida Atlantic and Florida International, Georgia Southern and Georgia State, Memphis and Middle Tennessee, South Alabama, Central Florida, and South Florida, Troy, UAB, and Western Kentucky. Uh, and to that, he adds Eastern Kentucky, Jacksonville State, and Charleston Southern. Uh, that, I mean, that, that all sounds close to what I was aiming for. Where he gets it right, of course, is by adding the freaking Midwest. He has, he has Kent State, Akron, Ball, Bowling Green, Tol- Toledo, Ohio, Miami, Ball State, Eastern Michigan, Central Michigan, Western Michigan, and Northern Illinois, uh, a.k.a. the MAC. I think that's 11 teams out of the MAC anyway. Um, and then he adds to that Illinois State, North Dakota State, Northern Iowa, South Dakota State, and Youngstown State. Other than Illinois State, you could go in a lot of directions with that one, but the, the, the Dakotas, Northern Iowa, Youngstown State, those are some of the more steady one to play programs that could honestly compete very well within the Midwest in a given year, within the MAC, whatever we call that now. The South, Arkansas State, this is basically what I had as well. Arkansas State, Houston, Louisiana Tech, North Texas, Rice, SMU, Texas State, Tulane, Tulsa, Texas San Antonio, Louisiana Monroe, Louisiana Lafayette, Southern Miss. To that, he adds Sam Houston, Stephen F. Austin, and Central Arkansas. Those make very good sense. 
Um, and that's, I mean, you know, that, that, that all fits together pretty nice from a geography standpoint. And then in the West, he has the, um, the, the mountain West in general, he adds to that Texas El Paso. He adds, uh, Idaho back. He adds, uh, Eastern Washington. He adds San Diego too, which I've never really been able to get a good read on San Diego because they're in a weird conference. What the pioneer, they don't really play anybody else around them. Their saga and ratings aren't all that great, but regardless, if you don't want San Diego, add Montana, uh, and that's basically a, a lovely conference right there. So the idea here, again, I, I'm pretending like everybody listens to every single podcast we record. That is clearly not the case. Um, but this this idea spawn, was stemmed from a, a discussion we had a couple of weeks ago regarding basically what to do with the G5. Um, you know, if we are to, it, it, it kind of, if you're looking to avoid losing ground, uh, and as we talked about at the time uh, with the AAC, kind of feeling like it's above the rest of the G5 and sort of being right with that, but still not having a great solid footing in the, in the world of future college football, however that looks, you can very, like, it, it would make a lot of sense to kind of join forces, create a G5 conference, so to speak. And from that, you could create uh, what we were calling a Champions League, say the top two from each conference. Um, glancing at the list, I will screw this up because I, I'm improvising again, and that's ill-advised. But basically from the East, say you could end up with a Navy and an Appalachian State or a Navy and a Temple, or maybe James Madison was was good enough uh, in that. But we'll say Navy and Temple. From the Southeast, then, you get a Memphis and a USF, we'll say. From the Midwest, you can get a Toledo and a Western Michigan, or, or, or Western Michigan and North Dakota State, whatever. Uh, NDSU wasn't quite as good last year. We'll say Western Michigan and Toledo. From the South, you would get a, we'll say, a Tulsa... And a Houston was probably the best, or maybe wait, where's Western? Oh, Western Kentucky's over in the southeast, uh, improvising, doing a poor job. So from the southeast, we'll say Memphis and Western Kentucky instead of Memphis and USF or US well, USF and Western Kentucky. We'll go with that. Sorry. Um, so from the south, then we would get a we'll say Tulsa and a Houston. From the West, you would get, uh, you know, if we're basing on division champions or whatever, you'd end up with like a Wyoming and San Diego State. In terms of quality, you'd end up with, with a San Diego State and maybe a Boise. But regardless, then you, you result the next year you get a 10-team conference. All those other team conferences now have 14 teams instead of 16. But from that, you would get a 10-team conference of Navy and Temple and Western Kentucky and USF and Toledo and Western Michigan and whatever I said, Tulsa and Houston or Tulsa and Louisiana Tech, whatever. And from the West, you'd get a San Diego State and a Wyoming or a Boise. That's a hell of a conference. And you could put a prime time matchup on the field, like basically every single whatever, every single Friday night, something like that, uh, where you could have a high quality matchup. You would get a high quality conference champion. You could set up the, 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 the relegation, so to speak, however you want. Uh, and you just cycle through to make sure you have a high-quality 10-team conference every single year, uh, and and you give yourself the best chance to make television revenue and, uh, and everything else. I like the idea a lot. Um, I do think that we have no idea what's coming from a quote-unquote future of college football perspective, but that's a lot of attractive entities all at once, and, and so many of them barely make any money. It's not like the joining forces would end up with a smaller piece of the pie there. Uh, it would be good, and I think that's you know creativity is going to go a long ways. Um, a couple more reader questions while we're at it here, and then I will let everybody go. 
All right, Scott Butler, our friend Scott Butler emailed eight days ago. We did not get to as many reader questions last week, but Scott Butler, uh, a few comments on previous podcasts. Number one, he, he asked us to, he, uh, to talk a little bit more about SDSU and Boise before transitioning to the AAC. Too late uh, on that one. Uh, a few comments on recent podcasts, though. The reason the Mount West teams are now run heavy is that football is a copycat sport. SDSU has found success, so the rest of the league is now doing the same thing. Rocky Long has indicated and directly addressed this over the past few years. I think it's a little short term, honestly. Um, you, uh, SDSU has found success, but yeah, it's not like you can completely change your own playing style in a, a, a very small amount of time. There is something to be said for it, though. If, uh, just generally speaking, run, the run game has been successful for a lot of teams. Um, and, and I, I still think though, it has something to do with going back to the availability of certain recruits and, and, and that probably, that probably explains something regarding run games. It probably explains something regarding, uh, a lot of bad defenses in the mountain West. Number two, uh, regarding TV contracts, I'm not sure why Godfrey hates CBS College Sports. I simply use my remote and change to the channel. What's the big deal with that? What do you think is a reasonable dollar amount per team that Mountain West te- can expect to get the next round of negotiations? Would the rate be, uh, w- what would be the rate for a streaming contract if they quote-unquote cut the cord? I think Godfrey's complaint has always been that he is cutting the cord or has cut the cord. And CBS Sports does, a, does by far the worst job of getting its product online. Uh, I think that's probably the major thing. Now, beyond that, I mean, we can talk about the number of of, uh, households that CBS College Sports isn't in. I don't know that offhand, but I think this has to do with mostly him saying in previous podcasts, I want to watch your product. You're making it very hard to watch your product. I think that's mostly an online thing. Uh, Number three. Uh, the worst realignment move is, e- uh, is easy to identify. It, it is Missouri to the SEC. Sure. Uh, Missouri will never again be able to recruit Texas talent like they used to. Uh, they are on an island and are screwed. The best thing for Missouri and the SEC would be for Missouri to crawl back to the Big 12. Uh, the Big 12 could then add Cincinnati and the SEC could pick up a school that fits their culture like Virginia Tech. Okay. Um, no uh, is the short answer. I mean, Missouri they are recruiting Texas again. They are doubling down on, on Texas again. They're shifting back towards that. Uh, tech, the, Missouri's on television in Texas. That's all you need. Uh, they're going, they do go to A&M not nearly as much as they used to, but you can sell. We, you will play on national television to Texas recruits, and they're not going after the five-star kids in Texas. They're going after the three-star kids that they like, uh, and they seem – it's early, but they seem to be doing a pretty good job of that for the 2018 class. We'll see how that plays out. Culturally, Virginia Tech is not a better – I mean, other than the fact that they like football, uh, Virginia Tech is not any better a, a, a cultural fit than Missouri is. Missouri is at least half southeast as they prove politically uh, – Incre- at an increasing level, they proved that politically at this point. But um, the other part of that is going back to the Big Twelve. Hell no, you do not. Nobody's going to back to a sinking ship. The 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 fans that I talked to, uh, one Kansas State fan in in particular, uh, quite frequently. That nobody wants to be in the Big Twelve. You, the, the SEC is a wonderful place for Missouri to be. It has raised the bar for them. It is 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 very clearly shown them where the bar is for sports like. Uh, tennis and gymnastics and whatnot. And, and um, they have a good gymnastics program that just gets its butt kicked every single week, but they set the bar there and they seem to be improving in, 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 in terms of recruiting and whatnot. And 
it just this is a, they they made a great move for themselves and they have already they've won the conference in volleyball they've won two division titles and and I'm not going to pretend like SEC like Missouri's about to start dominating the SEC they're not but they fit just fine um, and it's ridiculous to think otherwise it's ridiculous to think that Virginia Tech as an athletic program would be any better um, so I I mean it is what it is I understand I have an insular view on that or or a view from the inside or whatever you want to call it but no uh, Missouri is. Uh, liking life just fine in the Big 12 or in the SEC. There's no way in hell they're going to go back to the Big 12 or even think about doing that because that would be a stupid move financially. It would be a stupid move competitively. It would be a stupid move if you can look beyond 10 years from now and realize that the Big 12 might not not exist very soon. So anyway, uh, that added on a little bit. I appreciate everybody listening. This is a weird one. We should get Godfrey back next week. We'll have a couple more guests in the future. I hope you will listen. Uh, I know all of you just listen for Godfrey saying assy. So I, I understand if you turned this off a long time ago, but regardless, thank you. Uh, we will talk to you next week.